Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. brag about our weather in New York as compared to San Diego. I guess it's partly cloudy, a fair amount of wind. I'm sure you're doing better in San Diego. Yeah, we're it's sunny um, and I think mid to upper 60s today, so pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, you got to speak today. Let me get started. You'll remember that we're we're focused now on software companies that serve a particular industry. I haven't even had time to turn the pages, but Mike will get into that, that stuff in about 10 or 12 minutes. The first 10 or 12 minutes, I want to share an insight that I hope no one, no one should make investments based on this, but your ability to make intelligent investments is a function of accumulating these insights and walking around and thinking about it. But in terms of news this, this week, I think Everyone I know or read about surprised by Hertz agreeing to acquire 100,000 Model 3s from Tesla. The problem with, with that development is oil demand in the future. You know, the one thing that could, you know, other than another, another pandemic that could really hurt oil demand would be a, a fairly rapid adoption of battery-powered cars. And I think that a car rental company like Hertz, who's leasing cars at airports or, or maybe in urban environments where someone makes a decision to lease a car when they need it rather than own a car, they're really awfully well set up to operate battery cars, you know, in a, you know, in a big yard or with batteries, uh, you know, available. And so, I, I find that a bit of a concern as an oil investor because of its potential impact on demand. Now, if you look at oil demand as it has developed over the past couple of decades, the uh, developed parts of the world, uh, the United North America, Europe, Japan, have had very, very flat oil demand and just more efficient cars. Uh, whatever car you're driving now, almost always has much better gas mileage than a car you might have been uh, driving 10 years ago or 20 years ago. The demand in oil, increased demand, has come from the less developed countries, China, India, what have you. Now, <clears throat> this development, this Tesla Hertz development, doesn't really have too much impact on that less developed world. But what does have an impact on the less developed world is a place like China can simply say, I mean, it's kind of a controlled economy, can say, if you want to get a registration for a car, it's going to have to be an electric car. Or they can and have said, you can have a gasoline car, but that registration is going to cost money, where the registration for the 
so the battery car is free. So it's a concern. From a supply point of view in oil, the concern is that we're still coming back to getting full demand as it existed before COVID showed up. And we're not quite there yet. And in fact, oil supply, the OPEC countries plus Russia, still an extra 3 million barrels a day or so there. So we are, we are a bit vulnerable there. The Biden administration has said to OPEC plus Russia, hey, you need to produce more oil. This is causing inflation and whatnot. So far, they've resisted that. They seem to be on a march to increase production by 400,000 barrels per day per month. And they seem to be un, un, unwavering in their commitment to follow that. And if, if they take the 400,000 in another eight or nine or 10 months, they'll be back to where uh, they will be supplying as much oil as they did pre-COVID. Now, there is a bit of an odd lot here, and that's Iran, because the Trump administration had them under sanctions. The sanctions have been continued by the Biden administration. You've had a change of government in Iran. But you, they, they, the Biden administration you know, will probably, at some point in the next half year or so, uh, relieve those sanctions in return for some commitment by the Iranians to, to, you know, run, you know, disable some of their centrifuges or not make as much enriched fuel. But so there, there will be some more supplies. As regards the U.S. still at 11 million barrels a day is the world's largest oil supply producer. That 11 million is down to 13. And given the capital constraints across our industry from two things, from the upstream companies not spending more than two-thirds of their cash flow, so they have free cash flow, and then the BP, Shells, Exxon, and Chevron switching away from upstream production into power, which is going greener, because when they go into power, they buy wind farms or develop wind farms and buy solar farms or develop solar farms. And, and work on hydrogen. So supply probably needs additional demand. Supply is probably, even with the money diverted away from upstream spending, supply in order to continue to have not $80 prices, but $65 prices, you probably need to have some increase in demand. And so that hurts things is concerning. The other thing that's concerning, I have to hurry up so I don't use too much time. The other thing that is positive for natural gas is Europe really is short. Most of the EC countries, to the extent that they're importing LNG from Gutter, who is the largest producer of LNG, are under long-term contract. The UK, for their own reasons, decided to rely on spot contracts. The largest LNG import facility in the UK, I think it's called Southport, is owned by uh, Qatar. It can supply, uh, if it were filled, 25% of UK gas requirements. One of the reasons their power prices, their LNG prices, their uh, even, even coal prices have increased in the UK is that that facility is not full. Why is that facility not full? Well, because 
the UK government and its regulated utilities relied on on the spot market to acquire their LNG, which made sense. When LNG was in oversupply, you you you'd be able to acquire LNG in the middle of 2020 for $4, later in 2027. But uh, eventually, it, when you got to January 21, the price got to $25 or $30. But you could say, wait a minute, that's seasonal, that's winter. If we average over the year, we're still better sticking with the spot market. Let's start with the spot market. This week, the Qatari energy minister was in the UK meeting with his counterpart, also sitting down with Boris Johnson. And I'm sure the message, well, he in an interview afterwards, he said, you know, the UK would be better off committing to term contracts. What is a term contract for LNG is typically set, used to be set at 15% of the price of oil. So at $80 oil, that would be $12 gas. Now, the latest deals between COGAS, which is the largest import of LNG in the world, uh, it's, it coordinates all the LNG imports into Korea, and Qatar are being done at 10 or 11% to renew contracts. So that'd be $8 gas, $9 gas. LNG trains and the gas fields to produce them are very expensive, very big capital costs, and someone like the Qataris will not go forward unless they have um, uh, under contract. So that they don't really want to be selling spot or relying on spot gas. So what is going on here in Europe and what may go on more in the U.S.? I think it's becoming clear that <clears throat> wind and solar with battery as backup cannot keep the grid up in a reliable way. You're going to have to have fossil fuels. And you know, people are going to phase out. No one's going to build new coal plants, and they're going to phase out the coal plants. So the fossil fuel that's going to be used is gas, and that's kind of positive. So maybe gas, including LNG exports in the U.S., will increase their market share over time of the power market rather than get reduced by, by uh, wind and solar. But more on that in coming weeks. I just want to share those insights because that news, that 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 news on the, the Hertz uh, acquiring Teslas, that news on the Qataris coming and kind of telling the UK what they should have done with the benefit of hindsight, those are all news items from the past week. And with that, over to Mike. And, uh, you know, we've covered, we're, we're really spending a lot, we spent a lot of time on, on uh, the chips. We spent time on uh, chip manufacturing. We I think have a general consensus, Mike and I do, that NVIDIA is really terrific, but pretty high value. We've looked at software. Well, we've looked at the snowflakes of this world, you know, general software providers. We uh, have looked at security, the software that provides security. And now Mike is on software companies that, that, that are vertical. In other words, they just address a particular industry. And with that, Mike has two to go over with us today, and so over to Mike, and sorry to have used more than 12 minutes, but over to you for the rest of the 30 minutes, Mike. 
No worries, and thank you. Thank you, Hunt. So before I get started, just a couple updates on general tech environments. The cloud company multiples are relatively unchanged, a little higher this week, 15.8 versus 15.3 from the previous week. Again, part of that is because we're starting to see some some of the earnings come in, and some of it's looking pretty good so far, at least from, from big tech in particular. Microsoft and Google both had earnings yesterday. Both had very good quarters, pretty incredible growth rates. I think I think Google's profit jumped more than forty percent from the year ago quarter. So pretty impressive for that large of a company. The other thing that that was relevant this week that that we're hearing a lot about is the impact of the Apple privacy updates. As many of you probably know, Apple's rolled out a new version of their operating system last year, and part of that included the option to not allow apps to track you. That makes it much harder for companies like Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter to target ads to to the user. And what we've seen so far is that Snapchat is behind the ball uh, when it comes to adapting to these changes, and Facebook seems to be doing fairly well with it. There's two kind of interesting things here. One the types of computation and tracking that they'll use in order to determine attribution in this new era is going to require more artificial intelligence type technology. So it's probably a tailwind for NVIDIA. The other tailwind for NVIDIA that came out of this is Facebook's commitment to spend about $10 billion a year on building the metaverse, which we've talked about just briefly before, but Roblox would be an example of another metaverse, but essentially they're very graphics intensive and therefore a great use for GPUs. So kind of further solidifying our, our position on NVIDIA and also probably validating some of the reason why it's run up in the last week or so. So with that, let's let's jump into vertical SaaS. So we 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 introduced this topic last week as a um, interesting investment thesis, mainly because there's there's been a bunch of new vertical SaaS companies that have IPO'd in the last year. So my thought was we'll start with a couple companies that have been around for a while, so with more of a track record. And over the next week or maybe even two, we'll dig into a few more vertical SaaS companies. So to recap, a vertical SaaS company is one in which the business is specifically focused on an industry vertical. Typically, when a company, when a new software company starts, they pick either a functional area or a vertical. And if, even if they choose a functional area, typically they have a beachhead market that is in one particular vertical, and then they expand from there. In these cases, the companies we're talking about are specific to particular companies. So I've got our two particular industry verticals. I've got two today I want to talk about. The first one is probably the blueprint to be the most successful vertical SaaS company out there. It's a company called Viva. They make software for the life sciences industry. And the second one is called Appfolio. They make software for the property management industry, so for, for real estate property management. So let's start with Viva, since they are the probably the most exciting vertical SaaS company. Uh, this What's really special about this company is when they started, uh, as with all Silicon Valley-based startups, they started with a relatively small amount of capital raise. The total amount of capital raised prior to their IPO was only $7 million, which today is unheard of. I mean, the, the, the Series A financing is typically north of $7 million these days. 
the I'm kind of telling the story off the top of my head because I heard it so long ago, but the, my understanding is the CEO left and left Salesforce and he was selling to big pharma companies and essentially realized that Salesforce didn't have really the specific understanding of the, the, the pharmaceutical market and their existing solution wasn't going to solve their problem. So he left, built a, started a company that essentially skinned Salesforce and made it tailored it specific to the life science industry. So he was already a salesperson. So he already had relationships. They were able to do it very capital uh, in a very capital efficient way because, again, because of those relationships, he was able to design exactly what they were looking for. Uh, like I said, the initial product was just a, really just a CRM. Uh, and from there, they evolved and added new things. In 2010, they added some, some products around content management. And most recently, the products revolve around generating data in the drug discovery and development process. You know, it's a very unique industry, life sciences, that there's a lot of technology risk in, in life sciences, but they, they prefer that, that risk to be based on the, the development of the, their drugs and treatments and not on their software and technology. So it was, it's always been one that's sort of neglected. The other thing that's really nice about that industry for a vertical-specific SaaS company is that there are some very onerous regulatory burdens in that industry, which makes it somewhat protected so that other companies aren't necessarily going to go in there, um, certainly not without some sufficient knowledge. The one downside, I think, that is worth mentioning about Viva is that they have very high customer concentration because there's only so many large pharma companies. Uh, they are beholden to really only a, a handful or two handfuls of very large companies that are footing the bill. Before I move on to Absolio, Hunt, do you have what else? On Viva? What, what other risks do you see with, you know, I mean, it, it seems awfully well established and to build a business like this with so much, the little beginning capital seems quite extraordinary. Where where else is the risk? And I understand the concentration of customers, but where else is the risk here? Well, I think there's you can think of. certainly some risk. Certainly some risk on valuation. I mean, it's the same the same story that we've been talking about with all of these companies. Is that from a relative valuation perspective, you can say it's more or less valuable, but from a from a bottom-up valuation perspective, even if you're subtracting out half of your sales and marketing and half of your R&D expenses, these things are expensive. I mean, it, it's free cash yield is like, as of the end of last year, 1.9%. Forecast to be 2.1% in 2022. So it, it's these aren't cheap by any means. They're expected to have a lot of growth. In the case of, of Viva, sales growth estimates for for this year, which ends um, in January, 25%, the following year, 19%, and the year after, 18%. So part of that's predicated on the existing product, products, but also launching new products. One of the things that appeals to me here, and I've got to spend more time, I've hardly turned the pages, but in many of these software businesses, you don't have free cash flow. The only way you get free cash flow is adding back, you know, half of the marketing and half of the R&D. Here, your free cash flow is going from your numbers, Mike. 
is around half a billion dollars before you do that. And, you know, it goes from like 550 to 800 when you add it back. But I'm really impressed that it's 500. Also, the way I tend to judge businesses is how quickly is the free cash flow increasing. And again, without doing those ad backs for marketing and research, your free cash flow just, and these are off Mike's numbers. I'll work on my own this weekend. Just the last five years goes 80, 144, 233, 311, 437, 551. I mean, that's pretty impressive growth. So if your, if your free cash return because of a high stock price, uh, even adjusting for the extra cash on hand because it has no debt and cash on hand is, you know, 1%. I mean, that, that does make you vulnerable. But if the free cash or your ability to pay dividends goes up at the rate of, you know, like 30% a year or something, you know, that can still be a, a pretty attractive investment. You certainly, if you went into a position like this, you'd want to do a half position in case there was some, you know, bump in the road and the valuation came down, you'd have some room to uh, fill out your position at a lower price. This looks like an awfully well-established company. Yeah. And very capital efficient, um, which I think for our purposes, when you talk about minimizing risk in entering uh, a position or particularly getting exposure to technology, a company like this is going to be resilient in the event of a downswing. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, listen, uh, let's cover the second one with our remaining time. Sorry for interjecting so much. Great. Okay. So Appfolio, again, a vertically, uh, a vertical SaaS business that focuses on the real estate industry. Cloud-based solutions primarily used for property managers and other constituencies within uh, the property management business ecosystem. Like Viva, they're actually relatively capital efficient. They, they raise a relatively small amount of money before going public. I, the number I could come up with is $30 million. Interestingly, and I think this is probably the most important point to pull out of this related to this thesis of investing in vertical SaaS businesses, they, prior to their IPO, acquired a company called MyCase, which is a software-as-a-service solution for legal practices. They just sold that business, and I believe they made a pretty good return on it. it the, the acquisition price wasn't disclosed. But assuming they spent maybe 20-ish million dollars on it, they probably did about as well on that as their general IRR for the rest of the business. So probably running that is fine. I think that it presents, it tells us two things. One, Appfolio realized that the strategy of being an expert in many different industry verticals is not their long-term strategy. So I think that also tells you that Appfolio thinks that their existing market and the property management and real estate markets that they participate in are big enough that there's no need to go after multiple verticals. Now, Appfolio is a relatively small company. They've got a market cap of $4.6 billion, uh, so relatively small compared to Viva, which is 50 there are lots of companies in this sub $5 billion range that are 
vertical specific. So I think we'll have a lot of fun over the next couple of weeks discussing the opportunities for for these guys. Appleio does have a comp that of, of a recent acquisition. A company called RealPage sold last December for $10 billion. Now, RealPage was doing approximately 3x the revenue that Appleio is doing. However, RealPage was using more antiquated technology and it was not a recurring software as a services business model. So it certainly would have gotten discounted valuations for, for those, those reasons. And, uh, you know, so with that, let's talk quickly on relative valuations. So if you look at these two, Appfolio uh, relative to Viva, they're both growing or expected to grow next year at about the same rate, but Viva is relatively more expensive. You're paying a little bit more for that growth. And then relative performance of the two companies, both have done extraordinarily well, uh, Essentially, Viva's 10x since 2015, and Apollo has 8x since 2015 versus the S&P at 143% return. So, again, both companies have done very, very well. So, I think both of them can provide us with a little bit of insight as to how a vertical SaaS company can grow. Uh, I'm going to include a bunch of links and more details in the email this week so that you can dig in them yourself if you're if you're interested. Right. We survived all that wind. Now, I think our weather deteriorates. So when we're talking to Mike at 3.30 Wednesdays, we can kind of enjoy San Diego weather vicariously. And with that, everyone stay healthy. Uh, We'll be on at 3.30 next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Thank you.